Okay, hello everyone. This is Chloe. She is a neuroscientist very shortly. She's finishing up her PhD and she does all of her research in psychedelics, right? Yes. So... Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about what you have discovered in your research? So I'm currently collecting data still from my main dissertation research. And the dissertation is something that you do before you officially finish your PhD. So I don't have any of my own data analyzed. But what I research is how psychedelics alter our beliefs, specifically the mechanism. So we know that psychedelics alter our beliefs and there's tons of research into what types of beliefs are altered as a result of using psychedelics. And so my research kind of goes into how that happens. Just out of curiosity, when you decided to go into neuroscience as a field, did you have the intention that this was going to be what you were going to study? So I decided in college that I wanted to study psychedelics. And at that time, there were only two schools in the entire United States that had psychedelic research programs established. I applied to both of those programs for grad school and I did not get in. Um, So I stuck with neuroscience and I got my master's in neuroscience doing different research. And then I kind of was at a crossroads where I knew it was going to be psychedelic research or I was going to do some type of other psychedelic work, but I knew I wanted to stay within the psychedelic field. Um, And so I pretty much went around my university looking for somebody that studied something that related to psychedelics. And I found this awesome philosophy researcher who studies belief. Um, And so I was like, hey, psychedelics alter our beliefs. Will you let me research psychedelics? under your mentorship and one thing led to another and here I am. So can you go into a psychedelic experience like with the intention to change a belief about something? So that's the really interesting thing about belief. You can desire to have certain beliefs, but really you don't have much control over what you believe. Um, You... I think as humans, we are, we are coded or primed to have certain types of beliefs, for example, spiritual beliefs. I think that's an mm. innate human um, thing that we long for. But I think the psychedelic experience is so conserved across uh, individuals that no matter what your belief is before, uh, going back to spiritual beliefs, it seems like your beliefs after follow this pattern that a lot of individuals share and it's things like the belief that we are all one or the belief that god is love or that we are all connected and the self is an illusion which also relates to buddhism so it's these core beliefs that no matter what you believe before you tend to uh, form these specific beliefs after so you can go into a psychedelic experience being super skeptical about everything spiritual or religion or Buddhist or whatever modality and then you can come out of it feeling like spiritual is that what you're saying yeah so there was a study at Johns Hopkins it was the largest ever DMT study um, conducted and what they found was don't quote me on this, but something like 47% of participants, maybe not, I don't know it off the top of my head, um, that were atheist before the experience um, were now other. So some type of uh, agnostic, spiritual type of uh, belief. Um, And a lot of them came out of the experience believing that they now understood the fundamental nature of reality. That's insane. I I mean, personally, myself, like I, I've already told you this, and I'm sure other people listening have already heard me say this before. I've never tried psychedelics before, but I'm extremely interested in them. And especially since starting this podcast, I 
just so happened to be reaching out to people who are very like well versed in psychedelics, whether it's like their own personal experiences or for example, you literally studying it. Um, so I'm slowly like inching towards my first experience. I just don't know what to take. Like there are so many different types of psychedelics. Like you were saying, you've got DMT, you've got psilocybin, um, ayahuasca. Does that categorize as a psychedelic as well? Ayahuasca is a brew made out of DMT. Um, And so, yes. So for people listening and for myself as well, for someone who's never tried anything, what's like the most beneficial for people when so, they're first trying out? Because of the illegal status of psychedelics in the United States, a lot of the research kind of groups them together. So there haven't been a ton of studies uh, to compare the psychological benefits of psilocybin versus LSD versus DMT. Anecdotally, I've heard that, um, or ayahuasca, I've heard that ayahuasca, LSD, and psilocybin are all therapeutically beneficial. Um, Obviously, ayahuasca and DMT are more potent, or the trip is more intense than Mm -hmm. something like psilocybin or LSD, but I mean, if you take a high enough dose of either of those, I've heard it can be very similar to what a DMT or ayahuasca trip is like as well. Yeah. Have you done research into releasing DMT naturally through things like breath work and things like that? So I haven't, no, but I know there are some really interesting studies on um, DMT and near-death experiences. So the idea that when somebody um, is dying, the brain endogenously produces DMT, um, but there's a lot of questions remaining about that. But it would make sense with breath work. I just, I haven't looked into it. Yeah, I've spoken to a couple people who have being deep into breath work um, and I've had some pretty intense experiences like feeling like they're on a psychedelic trip. They get to a point, um, who was I talking? It was one of my other guests that I was talking to. She said the sweet spot for her was between almost fainting like the borderline of like she's fainted before doing this breath work but and that's very common apparently uh but the sweet spot is just before you're about to faint and that's when you can kind of have those like psychedelic experiences I think that I mean I don't know the research but I think that sounds plausible for sure I think It's super interesting to ponder why we have DMT in the human brain, and we know that it's there. Um, And personally, I kind of think near-death experiences are the result of DMT. But more than that, I think a lot of our intense and profound spiritual moments are the result of endogenous Um, DMT production. And that's not to discount the spiritual experiences at all. I think a lot of people hear that and they think, oh, well, you're just hallucinating. But it's just like, why does your brain have this psychedelic in it that makes you feel this connection to something greater than yourself? Um, It's been called the spirit molecule. So kind of like the biological mechanism that allows you to connect with um, that other realm or yeah. whatever you want to call it. Is that similar to the stoned ape theory where it was the evolution of the human species like dependent on, was it like mushrooms? Was that it? Right. So the stoned ape theory was that pre-human uh, primates, for whatever reason, were forced out of where they were living um, and had to move and so during their migration they were eating mushrooms that they found along the way and these were psilocybin mushrooms and this aided in the 
um, development of human consciousness, maybe like speeding it up, because um, we know evolution happens very, very slowly. Um, there's no way to actually study that scientifically, so we'll never know. But I think it's really interesting, the research that has come out about psychedelics and consciousness, because it's not saying that psychedelics uh, raise, raise the vibration or make you have uh, a higher level of consciousness in the way, you know, we talk about it in the spiritual community. It's more that the psychedelic state measurably produces a richer state of consciousness where the brain activity is more complex than in normal waking consciousness. And this is measured uh, through entropy. So like the universe is moving towards higher entropy, more chaos, more disorder. Psychedelics do that to the brain um, temporarily as well. Does it activate different parts of your brain that may not have been active before? Because I know we don't use our entire brains, right? So we actually do use our entire brain. We do? <laughs> we do, Where did yeah. I? Why did I think that we don't? I is think there, that's a... Is there a myth that that's true? That's a myth, and I've heard it, and I thought that too until I started studying neuroscience. That's um, wild. What psychedelics do is they'll activate areas of the brain uh, and synchronize activity across areas that aren't normally active together or communicating with each other. Um, so in a way, creating pathways between two areas that had not communicated before. Right. Okay. So I can't ever use that excuse that I'm only using a portion of my brain well, ever I mean, again. <laughs> technically, certain neurons are firing in one area more than others during certain activities. So you're not always using every part, um, mm -hmm. but you are using every part you know, at some time point or another, just not all together. If every part was firing at the same time, I think that would be like a seizure or something. I don't know. Yeah. I guess I don't know how to explain this, but for example, how you can activate your third eye um, and that part of your brain is not always active until it's activated. Is it a similar sort of experience after psychedelics where you've been maybe using that part of its your brain, but not to its full potential? Think of it more like your brain has these pathways. Uh, so one neuron talks to another, talks to another, talks to another, mm -hmm. groups of neurons communicating with each other. And what psychedelics can do is um, erase some negative pathways, which kind of goes into my research about belief. So erasing the pathways that hold negative beliefs and then forming new pathways, uh, new groups of neurons communicating with each other across the brain. Right, I see. That makes much more sense. Um... I have a random, this is one of my random questions that I wanted mm -hmm. to ask you. What is essentially an ego death in psychedelics? Because I know a lot of people speak about this in the spiritual community where they're like, I had a psychedelic experience. I felt like a part of me died and I came out completely different and that's classified as an ego death but what's really like happening there so ego death is an experience where it, it can occur on a spectrum but essentially the line that separates your sense of self as an individual being from anything other than the self um, that line becomes blurred so when it's a little blurred and you're kind of feeling connected with everything around you, that would be considered ego dissolution. Um, whenever you are fully like 
feeling perceptually one with the universe. There is no self as far as your perspective is concerned. That would be ego death. Um, And what's happening in the brain is that there's this uh, network of brain regions um, called the default mode network. And this is where researchers believe our sense of self is held. And so what psychedelics do is they break down uh, the default mode network temporarily. And so when that network is no longer functioning the way it normally does, your sense of self uh, is compromised and it's therapeutically uh, beneficial. It's been shown that the ego death experience does mediate the psychedelic experience um, through DMT or default mode network disintegration. And I think this is really cool because this is something that Buddhism has been teaching um, since Buddhism first came about that the sense of self or the illusion of the self is the root of all suffering. So psychedelics allow you to see past that illusion. Um, and it seems to be really a really beneficial experience. However, I have heard that it is a very scary experience for some. Um, so it's not all, oh, I feel one with the universe all the time. It can be terrifying. Do the people who report it being terrifying, do they feel like they've lost like essentially their identity as a person? Right. So the beliefs we hold about ourselves that they completely go out the door because from your perspective, there is no self. Um, So Mm. I think that has a lot to do with these formations of belief. And I know I talked a little bit about spiritual beliefs, but a lot of um, the therapeutic benefits could be contributed to changes in beliefs about ourselves, how we relate to others um, in our world. So in depression, for example, there's research that shows people have these negative beliefs uh, about what's going to happen to them in their future. And psychedelics treat that depression and uh, those types of beliefs uh, are less likely in those individuals afterwards. So you have these beliefs about yourself and how you navigate the world that are changing. So after a psychedelic trip, say you have depression, whether you're doing it with a therapist or without a therapist, because I know people do do it with a therapist, um, how long does that depression like go away, basically? With, with so, saying in the most layman's terms, like yeah. you do a trip, you have di- d- depression, how long does the depression go away for before it comes back? So there haven't been a ton of studies that look at the long-term effects. I know it's been shown up to six months, mm-hmm. um, and I can say that confidently, but I think mm-hmm. what's interesting about psychedelics and why it differs from the antidepressants on the market today is that they really get to the root of the problem. It's not putting a band-aid over um, whatever the issue is, like taking a pill and changing your brain chemistry. My cat's walking in front of the camera. Um, Psychedelics really are insightful. They help you to um, see what beliefs are maladaptive um, that underlie that depression. And this is all in my view, there's, there's a whole, uh, debate about whether, um, the subjective experience of psychedelics is necessary for the therapeutic benefit. That's like a huge debate in the field. I personally think, yes, I think having these insights about our beliefs that no longer serve us, things maybe we developed in childhood as a coping mechanism, um, things we, had to tell our tell ourselves about ourselves in order to survive that as an adult they don't serve you anymore and psychedelics give you the insight during a trip to let go of those negative beliefs and form new ones and i think that's that is really fixing the root of the depression and so i think there's a lot of integration that goes into um, the psychedelic experience that could prolong the antidepressant effects 
So it's not a magic pill. You have to implement changes in your life from these insights you gain. And I think if you're working with someone who can help you do that, I see it as a long-term solution to depression. Yeah, that's from everybody I've spoken to, that's really the bottom line where people say you got to do the work. You have to um, do that integration. You have to face the, I guess, in the spiritual community, the shadow side of what comes up. And if you don't do that, you're not going to get all of the benefits that are from that medicine, whichever form of psychedelics that you choose. But what's interesting is I was reading the other day, um, one in 10 Americans are on some kind of antidepressant. And that was really alarming for me um, to read. And as somebody who openly speaks about having been on antidepressants throughout adolescence and early 20s, I'm like, I see the need why people have to go on them. There's just really no other option. And um, I'm curious for people who are on these medications that want to try alternatives, can they try psychedelics whilst they're on those medications? Or is it just pointless? So I can't speak to all antidepressants, um, but I know specifically SSRIs. There seems to be an interaction um, that can cause something called serotonin syndrome, which is uh, toxic and in some cases lethal. So I definitely would not recommend doing uh, psychedelics while on an SSRI. Um, and then is that just for SSRIs though? I know specifically for SSRIs that's the case, but I'm sure there's others as well with interaction. So of course you know, do your research if you do decide to do psychedelics while on any medication. Um, Another thing is that some medications can cause it to where you don't feel the trip. So you'll start taking more and more and more psychedelics. um, And that, that can be kind of what causes the serotonin syndrome because you're just taking so much with this SSRI and you just have a flood of serotonin, um, which is not, not good. Um, so some, some things you might not feel it, some things it could be dangerous. So I, I would recommend finding a doctor that you could communicate, you know, these things with, and I, I'm seeing more and more in the medical community, doctors are starting to understand a little more about psychedelics and be more open to psychedelics. Um, and so hopefully there's, there's tons of research, uh, resources online to find somebody, uh, a professional to talk to about your specific case. When you're looking online, do you literally Google like psychedelic <laughs> psychologist or psychiatrist? Like what, how would one do that? So maps.org, and I don't have the exact link, but maps.org, um, they have a great, resource for finding people in psychiatry who are familiar with psychedelics and work with psychedelics. And that's, it's the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, so MAPS. Oh, well, that's very, very helpful. Um, Okay, I'm totally switching gears here, but I was looking on your TikTok And I know you speak a lot about how people say that they travel to different dimensions. Is that right? Yes. So specifically with DMT and ayahuasca, but again, a high enough dose of LSD or psilocybin could surely, you know, trigger this. Um, But what happens is, Keep in mind, DMT is seven minutes, so we'll, we'll talk about DMT. It's, it's a very short trip. Mm-hmm. So 
the breakthrough DMT experience with a high enough dose, you subjectively feel like you're traveling through this tunnel. Um, and then at the end of the tunnel, you are in what we would describe as an alternate dimension, a higher realm, something like that. And so you aren't seeing what's actually in your surroundings. You aren't hearing what's actually in your surroundings. You are completely immersed in this other world from your perspective. Um, and there's typically beings there that people will communicate with. Um, they're described as elves a lot of time. Uh, a lot of the time, people will say they've talked to their ancestors, um, loved ones that have passed away. It's super, super cool. And I think it's really uh, interesting to study from a scientific perspective as well. But just hearing people's experiences is amazing. So because I don't know where the line is drawn between like, I've been in the spiritual community too long now to be aware of what's actually proven, what's not proven. Our dimensions, because my experience with dimensions is my work in spirituality, right? Accessing the fourth, fifth dimension, um, whether it's through meditation, whether it's um, during any kind of like energy healing session, whether I'm giving it or receiving it. So what's like the scientific research? Is that the right word or definition for what the dimensions are? So I can't get into, you know, physics and the research on <laughs> dimensions as far as physics goes. Um, but I can say from the scientific perspective and specifically within psychedelic research, which is such, a, it's in its infancy right now. My cat is climbing the curtains behind me. Um, the dim, it's just a hallucination in the brain. I mean, that's what people are, that's what science says right now. So they're just saying people are, hallucinating that they're going to what we would describe as like a heavenly realm, um, some place that exists maybe here and we just can't see it. Maybe it's somewhere else. It's different for different people. But typically the belief afterwards is that wherever that place is located, it continues to exist um, after the experience for that experiencer. So when it's existing after the experience, when you're no longer on the actual psychedelic, but you are able to access that dimension, is that what you're saying? No, they just believe that it's there somewhere. Kind of like, you know, those books you read where people have a near-death experience and go to heaven and come back. And they're like, I, I went to heaven. It's this place. It exists. I'm not there anymore, but it continues to exist. Um, that's kind I of see. the idea. Okay. So there isn't necessarily a definitive answer on that because it's kind of case by case with people experiencing. Right. And what's really interesting, though, is that some people – say that when one DMT experience ends and then a week, two weeks, a month, a year later, however long later they decide to do it again, it's like the trip starts back, almost like you press the pause button on your life in this other realm and then it Whoa. starts again. And you continue to go back to the same place. What's really, really cool is that across individuals, the, this place is described like so uh, similarly and specific beings that people have drawn out um, look the same for one person as they do someone else, a complete stranger to them. And so I think that obviously raises a lot of questions of is this a real place? Science would still say, you know, the brain is just uh coded to 
produce this type of fractal-like experience under psychedelics, but it can't disprove that either. So I think, you know, for people who experience it, they say it seems more real than real. And I can't, I don't, I can't say, you know? Yeah, it's so interesting. That's so fascinating that people are seeing the same beings. I would find that hard to believe that the brain itself is producing that same hallucination across the board. Like, I openly speak about my own experiences stone cold sober with uh what the spiritual community will call multi-dimensional beings that can come through into the 3d and connect with you and we're going woo woo here but you like woo so it's <laughs> fine um one of the many few scientists i would share this with but yes from this spiritual perspective i would be sort of guessing or predicting that they are experiencing the same multidimensional being and being so openly uh like their their energy is in a place that can facilitate that meeting yeah i think um that would be really cool. That sounds good to me. I've never <laughs> had a experience like that personally, and I've always wanted to. And something like that, not under the influence of psychedelics, because that, even though I would most likely believe it while under this influence of psychedelics, because, I mean, research just shows you, you have these experiences and you form these beliefs afterwards, but to experience it stone cold sober, I mean, that just sounds so cool. <laughs> it's definitely become somewhat normal. Um, and there is definitely parts of me that I, that I am like, I don't want to go too much further into the potential of what I know I can experience because of many reasons. One, the stigma. Two, people thinking if I speak about it that it's just nuts. Um, feeling the exact way that you described what it is like to go on a psychedelic trip feeling that sense of like okay now I'm questioning everything in the actual 3d physical reality my beliefs about the world my beliefs about myself and as as a self and that identity so there's so much that goes with it like it's very cool but there's also like an experience after that where I'm like what is fucking real like truly what is real I think that's really interesting because with psychedelics, you can, you know, meet an interdimensional being and get scared and maybe your brain as a way to protect itself can chalk it up to, well, that was just a normal thing that you experience while you're hallucinating on this drug. But like you said, to experience essentially the same thing without a psychedelic, it makes it a lot more real. Um. Do you ever feel like ungrounded with those things? Um, so I've heard with psychedelic experiences, it can be very woo-woo, but also very grounding at the same time. And in my own kind of spiritual journey, which has been all over the place, I mean, now I'm a neuroscientist. So um, at one point in my life, I was definitely a lot more spiritual than I am now. And I just remember it being in a very ungrounded way. And so I'm just curious what your kind of experience with that has been. Yeah, I go through different stages where my energy is at. For example, there are periods of time where I do feel ungrounded. And I, I'm at a point now where I've been 
experiencing this long enough that I can understand that is what's going on and I need to actually ground myself. So going outside quite literally, like in nature, like physically, like putting the intention that I'm connecting to the earth. And yes, this is going to sound woo-woo, but like seriously anchoring yourself to the earth and like using the breath to connect back down. Um, And because my third eye and crown are so open, like truly don't know how to describe it any other way, there, it's always like a, a top heavy feeling is, Mm -hmm. is kind of like, uh, the energy is not necessarily always balanced throughout the entire body. So there are days where it's more active than others. Like for example, yesterday, I just felt like so spaced out and dizzy all day because I can feel people who have this same experience will understand this, but, um, it really does feel like an immense amount of pressure on the top of the head. That's the best way I can describe it. Um, And not every day does it feel like that, but for whatever reason, there are some days where I will use my intention as best as I can to try and close it off, but it's really just constantly receiving information and frequency and it gets so intense. It's not like a headache, it just feels yeah. like an intense pressure. So to answer your question, yes, it does feel ungrounding. But if you're con- consciously and continuously trying to ground, um, you can kind of get around it. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to help your research in any kind of way, but there's a chakra that's called the Earth Star Chakra. I don't know if you've heard of it. I haven't, no. So it's it's located a couple inches below your feet. And in energy healing, whether it's like whatever modality, but specifically like Reiki, uh, things like sound healing, biofield tuning, all of those things, you spend a lot of time connecting people to their earth star chakra because you want them to be connected with the energy of the actual earth, the electromagnetic field of the earth and allowing their own um, earth star chakra to be charged with that energy. And that in itself, just connecting people and opening and activating that one chakra a couple inches below the feet can be so profound for things like anxiety, uh, rumination, feeling like you're constantly in your head and like pulling all of that excess energy down into the feet. So whenever I'm feeling as though I'm like, okay, there's too much energy going on above the head. I'm feeling really ungrounded. I will um, use things like a tuning fork which is 174 hertz sound frequency and just uh, activate it below the feet until I can feel the energy kind of draining down to that point. Cool. So I do a lot of body scan meditation. So I Mm -hmm. visualize um, energy moving through my body. Yeah. That sounds, I guess, kind of similar Um, But I don't know a lot about Reiki or any of the other things you mentioned. So I will, I can send you some links after the call as well, because I think you would be interested in this. But basically, there's a modality called biofield tuning, and it's using different sound frequencies to activate and clear energies in the body and then around the body in the field around the body and um most of it is theory and hypothesis it's like I don't think it's vastly studied but it's very interesting and I've 
I obviously do it with some of my clients and I, I've received it and it is so intensely powerful in ways that Reiki isn't. Um, it's hard to kind of compare them, but if you're doing those body scan meditations, I feel like you'd be really interested in like, you can purchase the actual tuning forks yourself and try it on yourself. Cool. I'm always down to try anything. And I know I mentioned earlier, like I'm not as spiritual as I used to be. Um, but I'm kind of at a place with my science and research that I did want to mention where like, I will try anything personally, even if there's no science to back it up. Um, and I'm super open to that. I first of all, just love the life experience. Um, and then secondly, I just wanted to mention, so being spiritual, I was on a very intense spiritual journey a few years ago uh, in a very ungrounded way. And I started researching neuroscience professionally. And really, that was the result of my spiritual journey. I was looking for answers and I wanted to know what neuroscience as a field had to say um, to answer my questions that I had about consciousness and the whole human experience. And what it did for me was that it kind of forced me to let go of a lot of pseudoscience beliefs that I had formed on the basis of, you know, hearing other people's experiences and seeing that, okay, there's really no science to back this up or the science is being um, described in a way that's not really accurate. Um, but I'm kind of now in this place where, okay, love the science. I think I'm a lot more skeptical of a person as I used to be, but I want those personal experiences because if I experience something for myself, whether science says it's disproven or not, that doesn't really matter. If it helps you, it helps you. And uh, I'm, I would love to try all of the things. I think it's super interesting too. Yeah. I always encourage people to just try and see for themselves because I was quite literally the person a couple years ago, more than a couple years ago, uh, who was super skeptical about spirituality, um, close to an atheist for periods of time where I thought that there was something out there, but I just didn't really know what it was. And I really disliked uh, the institution of religion and how it was like used in the world. So I just kind of didn't want to be a part of that. And most of this really happened when I was in my deepest parts of like depressed times. And I just think part of that, I mean, like I mentioned before, I was on antidepressants despite all of those efforts. I was in therapy um, this was pre-spiritual awakening, I would never, never, never have been open or willing to consider at that point spirituality as a concept, but also um, the like healing properties and benefits of things like Reiki and biofield tuning and sound healing and all of that. Um, because I was so skeptical, but it wasn't until I was literally at a point where I couldn't go on the way I was going on with typical talk therapy, seeing a psychiatrist, all of that sort of thing. And I was just desperate for something to work that I did try Reiki. And I've said this a million times, but I'll never forget the first session that I had because it was one of those experiences where I had visions, I saw things. It was quite literally like a trip. Like I had, I guess I can kind of talk a little bit about it because I haven't really talked about what I've seen in that first uh, session that I had, but it was like a, a trip of sorts. I don't want to say that because I've never had a psychedelic trip, but 
of a a train and the train was taking me on a journey so it was like mountains on each side and then this train in the middle and different things would show up on the train and kind of work I would be working through it all the while I'm my eyes are closed I'm lying on a table and the practitioner is like moving energy I also remember uh feeling a presence in the room and later when I finished the session I was chatting with the practitioner who I'm still friends with and she was like oh yeah your uh your grandfather was standing over there in the corner and I'm literally getting chills as I speak about this because it was like one of the first times where I was lying on the table and I was like I literally thought someone was at the door like I had my eyes closed but I could feel that there was someone there and that confirmation that she was noticing it as well without even speaking was enough for me to know that there was something more to what I was experiencing and so I just continued to do reiki like once a week for a while just because of the relief that I had felt and the mostly just the confirmation because I was such like a see it to believe it feel it to believe it type person so if you're the same way you definitely need to experience it before you will fully understand it and it's different for everyone too and that's the thing about spirituality and I think that's maybe why it's so hard to study as a science because it is so different for everybody and it's there's similarities but it's very personal at the same time I think that is absolutely amazing I just <laughs> love it when people have beliefs that come from personal experience and I think that's also you know one of the things that's turned me away from uh religion I grew up thinking I was a Christian for a really long time but I don't think I ever actually was looking back on it but it's just you know having faith without having that personal experience and that the Christianity wasn't working for me because of that um and that's why I think the psychedelic experience is so interesting as well because you you form these beliefs because of your personal experience and I've taken a lot of um, graduate level courses on moral, the moral implications of our beliefs and the ethical implications of our beliefs. And I've come to this place where I believe that as long as your beliefs don't harm you, which they tend to help us, and as long as they don't harm others, which with psychedelics and with what you're talking about, it helps others as well then like whether or not science proves or disproves your belief has no moral or ethical implication as long as it's not harmful to you or anybody else like what a beautiful thing to hold a belief whether science says it's real or not and I would love to have like something like that with Reiki whatever it is. Um, I think that's really, really cool that you were able to experience all of that. And yeah, I think it's super interesting. Yeah. Each person's first Reiki session will be very different. Um, I don't want to discourage people who have, who are listening and who have had a Reiki experience and it hasn't been as intense as what I described. Um, because it does affect your energy differently and depending on how sensitive you are can play a big role in that and also how ready and willing you are. Um, but I find it interesting that like institutions like religious institutions or um, even the government, most governments around the world, um, still 
kind of demonize the idea of psychedelics and this drug that connects us to that higher knowing and that higher realm and to our higher self. Um, and I, yeah, it's, it's hard. It's like a hard pill to swallow, like thinking about that because correct me if I'm wrong, psychedelics, they're in the same class of drugs as like heroin, right? And meth. Right. They are schedule one, which is, I don't know the schedule exact one, definition, that's right. but it's like no medical or therapeutic benefit causes harm kind of category. It's the, it's the most extreme category. Um, and we just, and it's been that way. Not true. Since, has it been that way since Nixon? Um, I should know this, but probably yes. Whenever it was the sixties and they became illegal, um, whatever. The war on drugs, was. essentially. Yes. Yes. Um, that's when, um, they were put in schedule one and they've stayed schedule one since then. But what's, crazy is that there was research being conducted showing they had therapeutic benefit um, before they became illegal and that just came to a complete halt. So you can go back to like the early 60s and find these really old research papers on psychedelics being beneficial and then it just goes into like all of this misinformation research which you have to sift through when you're looking at the psychedelic literature, essentially. Um, but yeah, it's insane how like they knew it was beneficial to some degree. It was very, you know, early stages of research, but there was some promising research and they just ignored it, essentially. That's that just makes me like so mad. <laughs> I do you think there's any room for that change because that's been that's been quite a long time now that they've been in that classification um and how do they how do scientists access them to study them if they're in that class one schedule one so the research teams can apply for a license from the DEA that's granted on a case-by-case -case basis to research psychedelics and you have to acquire the drugs themselves through a approved channel um, so it's a lot of um, it's an uphill battle for research teams but it's not impossible and since I've been in graduate school so when I first applied there were two in the country and now there are I don't know maybe a dozen almost a dozen so it seems like um, oh, so it's more gone institutions up. yes um, and I don't have the number off the top of my head but I know there's been quite a few since 2018 <laughs> yeah so all of those uh like old speeches from like whether it's Nixon or other presidents or just even school counselors I remember at school where they'd be like these drugs are going to kill your brain <laughs> is that true like does it really is that completely false it's completely false I mean uh, there were research papers published by the NIH um, saying that psychedelics cause brain damage, shorten your chromosomes, thing, things like that, that are just absolutely not true. Um, and so that's what medical doctors are, were taught in medical school during all of these years. Um, and so that's, you know, it's in their, their curriculum. And so, yeah, it's actually just flat out misinformation, which I'm like very like misinformation in this day and age is so confusing 
um, to sift through like what's true, what's not in the news and the media. Um, but this is one of those cases where it's just black and white and it was just straight up misinformation. So psychiatrists who had studied um, or are still studying at this time, like if, if somebody was to go to their psychiatrist and ask them, hey, I am interested in trying, I don't know, mushrooms for the first time, just wanted to get your thoughts on this, knowing my mental history, my mental health history, would those psychiatrists flat out just say, you know, I don't advise you doing that? Like, what? I can't answer that. I Besides the one on maps.org. Yeah. <laughs> so I think because it's illegal, I'm not sure, you know, I don't, I don't know what the rules of being a psychiatrist are, but I'm sure, you know, they can't advise you to do an illegal substance, first of all. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is whether they are informed on the research that's been published in the last 10 years or so or not. I think it would be on a case-by-case basis, but I will say I think more and more people are starting to become more aware of the therapeutic benefits of psychedelics, Um, and that's, like, enlarged from people talking about it, trying to end the stigma, um, news outlets publishing articles about it. Um, And so that's essentially what I try to do on my TikTok as well. But it's crazy how many neuroscientists don't know about psychedelics. So people who research depression or research anxiety or research um, OCD, whatever it is, and they don't even know about how psychedelics could impact their field of study because right now psychedelic research is kind of in its own bubble. And it's like, no, psychedelic research should be a subfield of depression research, a subfield of anxiety research. And like these experts in all of these different fields need to start familiarizing themselves with the implications of psychedelics on their work. Because I personally think psychedelics are going to transform how we look at mental illness, how we approach treating mental illness, um, just psychiatry and neuroscience research as a whole. So it's just, it's so crazy that it's in its separate bubble still. And I'm like, there's so many papers out there that you have access to for free online. Um, People just don't know to go read them. That's wild that it's separate. I... It, it seems so counterintuitive to do that. Like, it just doesn't make... It, I can see maybe why they want to keep it separate. But, like, for me, hearing that, like, it doesn't make sense. Um, also, for therapies, like, I mentioned this before on the podcast, where I have been interested in trying uh, ketamine therapy with a therapist, where they give you ketamine... Um, like through an IV and you're talking to them whilst on it. I know there are people who do MDMA talk therapy. That one I'm not interested in just from my own experience with MDMA. Uh, So I'm curious, how do they do that if that's not a a legal substance? So I don't know specifically but I know that ketamine MDMA and maybe another one were granted breakthrough therapy status by the FDA because the research showing their benefits for PTSD in that initial basic research period were so profound like it just was so great better than anything on the market for treating PTSD, they expedited the process. So I believe there are 
allowances for whether it's a clinical trial you participate in or if they have based ketamine clinics. I don't know what kind of, I don't, I really don't know. I just know, you know, the FDA has definitely said, okay, this thing is good. Let's keep pushing for it. Um, I did want to mention while we're on the topic of ketamine and MDMA that those are what are called um, dissociative anesthetic psychedelics, and they have a different mechanism of action. So their mechanism of action is very similar to each other. So how they affect the brain is very similar, but different from things like psilocybin and magic mushrooms, LSD, DMT, and ayahuasca. So they're kind of in these two separate categories. And then there's other psychedelics and other categories that I really don't know much about at all. Um, so everything I've kind of talked about today has been in reference to the classic psychedelics, um, which have, uh, they're called serotonergic psychedelics. So they are different, similar to each other, but different from ketamine and MDMA. Is MDMA classified as a type of psychedelic? MDMA, I couldn't tell you the full name for it. It is a dissociative, dissociative anesthetic like ketamine. So okay. there's just like little groups and it's because they do something, uh, they have a similar mechanism of action in the brain. They bind to the same subtype of receptor as each other and have similar downstream effects as each other um, versus like LSD and psilocybin, they bind to this subtype of serotonin receptor and that's how they work. So um, it's kind of like the pathways I was talking about earlier. MDMA and ketamine act on one pathway, the classic psychedelics act on another. Interesting. Okay. And then I'm aware of time, but I just want to ask you another real quick question. Okay. <laughs> I could ask you questions all day, just pick your brain about these types of things. But um, now knowing the differences between those two um, groups of drugs, does the psychedelics of like mushrooms, um, LSD, all of that sort of thing, do they have the same come down effect as MDMA and ketamine? I'm glad that you asked that question because no, they don't. So ketamine and MDMA, their mechanism of action causes your brain to release all of its serotonin, well, not all of it, but a large percentage of the serotonin that your brain produces. So that's why you feel that euphoria feeling on those types of psychedelics. It's literally causing your brain to release its produced serotonin. So then afterwards or during the come down, uh, which I don't study these drugs, so bear with me if this isn't accurate, um, there can be feelings of depression or feeling down or fatigued in a way that, you know, apathy. Um, and that's because it takes time to make serotonin in your brain. So your brain has to produce more serotonin to bring it back to its normal functioning levels. With the classic psychedelics, what they do is they bind in the place of serotonin. So your serotonin um, is not being used up. They're being used in the place of where serotonin would bind. So you don't feel that um, crash or serotonin depletion afterwards like you would with the other ones. Which makes me curious as to why they have passed ketamine and NDMA for depression therapy and PTSD. Like if you were to do a session uh, with a therapist and have ketamine uh, IV experience, would you leave that experience feeling extremely depressed? I don't think so. I think there's dose effects. So I'm sure in the therapy, they don't do as large of a dose as someone who would experience a, a really bad come down. 
I just, I don't know enough about the mechanism of action of ketamine and MDMA to answer that. I do know that the research does show it's promising. The trip is a little different from the classic psychedelic trip. I don't really know in what way, but it seems to be beneficial. Um, There seems to be more risk associated with using those psychedelics based on the very minimal amount of uh, literature I've looked at. But overall, I think, you know, they seem to be good if I just don't know enough about it. That's okay. Um, I will end this here because I don't want to chat your ear off like I already have. Um, and just everything that you've said has been so interesting and just opened up like a whole other box of questions that I didn't even have before about psychedelics. And I'm sure people listening to are feeling the same, the same way. Um, so just thank you for sharing all of your knowledge. And it's just so amazing that this research is actually being done now. Um, and do you want to plug anything before we close your Instagram or TikTok or? Yeah, thanks. Um, my TikTok is Chloe Lily West. And my Instagram is neuro-psychedelic wait that's wrong my instagram is neuro underscore psychedelic um and then i also have a psychedelic inspired clothing line um and that's on instagram as well you can find it through neuropsychedelic um and i just create clothing inspired by psychedelics to help stop the stigma um so yeah Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. It's been amazing.